This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I am delighted to have the infamous Jimmy Moore joining us for the podcast. He is a best-selling author. He is a prolific writer and host of the Livin' La Vida Low Carb Show. It is truly my pleasure. This is someone who has influenced the trajectory of my own learning through intermittent fasting, which is where I first connected with his writing, with a book he co-authored with Dr. Jason Fung, The Complete Guide to Fasting, and then later dove into his Keto Clarity and Cholesterol Clarity, which I highly recommend. Here's my conversation with Jimmy. We talked all about childhood influences, how he navigated going from being an English slash poli-sci major into finding the ketogenic lifestyle and Atkins, ultimately becoming an author and was really prolific at creating podcasting when there weren't a lot of people in the space doing it. So he's been around for a long time and provides a very transparent, honest, thoughtful discussion that we had a few weeks ago. Enjoy. Well, today I'm really excited to interview the Jimmy Moore. Jimmy, how are you today other than hot? Um, I'm actually really well. Yeah. This time of year in the South, you Mm -hmm. just kind of expect hot and muggy is kind of, and I just mowed my grass too. So, so when I was told thermogenesis works really good when it's hot. (laughs) Well, it's such a pleasure to connect with you. It's really an honor and a privilege of obviously I followed you for years to be able to connect and, you know, pick your brain and hear more about you. I have spent a lot of time getting to know the man behind the man, I guess is what I would say. And so it, it seems to me that one of the things that really impressed me was you had, it seems like very close to your siblings and your mom growing up. And what do you think was your biggest childhood influence? Like when you look back, what were the things that really helped mold you into the man that you are today? Honestly, it wasn't anybody. If I'm being honest, it was experiences. Mm-hmm. It was understanding things that weren't quite right. And I talk very openly about my childhood trauma. I got beat and mentally berated by my dad all throughout my teenage years. And it affected me for a long time afterward. We're only talking like two years ago that I'm really coming to terms with my childhood trauma. So I have to say it's those experiences because I often go down this rabbit trail, Cynthia, where I go, what would my life have been like had I had two loving parents that fully embraced what I obviously have creative talents and skills or did those creative talents and skills get born in me out of the trauma? I don't know the answer to that question, to be honest with you. Although having done some kind of research on this, every great person that's done extraordinary things had some shit happen to them in their past. Like, look it up. Like literally your favorite, anybody, look it up. They all went through some stuff. And I think there's just something that gets triggered in your brain. So for that reason, I'm glad. And I would say that probably had the most profound impact on me more than anything was ironically the worst part of my life. 
Well, and it's interesting because as I was doing my research for our interview, those traumas kind of stood out to me as something that I can really relate to. I had a physically and verbally abusive father. And, you know, I remind myself that I did not perpetuate what I grew up in, you know, with my own Mm -hmm. children and certainly not with my own marriage. But one of the things that really struck me a few years ago is I realized that resiliency is born out of a necessity to be able to right the wrongs that you, you know, as a child, you have no control over those things. Right. As an adult, we do, you know, our perception. And it was interesting when I was reflecting on the conversation that we would have, I really do believe that whether they're macro or micro traumas that we grew up with, and even as a healthcare provider, I think I was conditioned to believe that traumas have to be something like huge, like you have to have been raped or been in a terrible car accident. And what I've come to find out is that in many ways in our internal kind of discourse, we downplay what we grew up in because that's just our, that's what we grew up around. Or you think that's what normal is. Mm -hmm. Enter the world thinking, oh, everybody had a father that yelled at them. Everybody had a dad that said, you're never going to amount to anything and you're a gay and no woman will ever want to be with you. Everybody, because that's your norm. That's the grounding of like who you are when you learn like what's what in the world. It's your bringing up. And so when you get out in the real world and you realize, whoa, Like it's such a mind fuck, excuse the language, but it is when you realize all the things you thought were normal are non-normal. Right. And it's interesting to me because one of my best friends growing up, actually, most of them had these very kind of beaver cleaver existences, my husband the same way. And on many levels, it has been as I've watched my children get older that I say to them, you really, and I don't say it in a way that they don't appreciate what they have. It's just you don't realize, like I sometimes don't realize the trauma I grew up in until I recognize how different my children's experiences are, how grateful I am that they don't have those experiences. But I think that internal resiliency really translates into a skill set, a mindset that you can get through just about anything, you know, irrespective of what comes down the pike. It's like, you know what? I went through that. If I can get through that and turn out pretty good, (laughs) I'm doing really well. And that's the bright side. And I totally agree because I'm a resilient badass, I promise you. But I think it also turns on a lot of coping mechanisms Mm -hmm. that you don't immediately recognize as such. And then you take them into adulthood. And there's some I still deal with that I go, why do I keep doing that? I'm well beyond, I'm decades beyond the traumatic, well, the initial traumatic, because that's something else Trauma begets trauma begets trauma begets trauma. And it wasn't until about two years ago that the last trauma ended for me. And I've been pretty cool and done a lot of internal work myself the last two years that's made me light years ahead of what I was, like I said, just literally two years ago. And it's such a journey to try to unfold these, but you can't see them till you take the scales away from your eyes and you start really looking at yourself and kind of identify who am I? What do I believe? Okay, I believe that. Okay, why do I believe that? Did somebody tell me to believe that or is that something Jimmy actually believes? And a lot of the stuff, Cynthia, I found out, I believe a lot of stuff I didn't believe only because I had been told that's what I'm supposed to believe and I never changed it. Yep. That narrative. Are you familiar with Byron Katie's work? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that sounds very Byron Katie-ish. For those of you that are listening and are saying, I don't know who Byron Katie is, a lot of 
our memories, our own perceptions of what's happened. And I have like all of her books. And eventually one of these days I will go to one of her events if we get back to a point where we're doing a lot of normal things again, but especially as it pertains to traumas and, you know, kind of reflecting on what we've been through and the tales that we weave, you know, some of it's compensatory. Like I know for myself that I say all the time, I'm so grateful that my parents were the way they are because some people have the example of wonderful parents that, you know, demonstrate love and demonstrate, you know, healthy boundaries and relationships And then sometimes you get the opposite. And I tell people all the time, like, I so appreciate what I have because of what I grew up in. And those boundaries become even more important, the older and wiser I become. So I'm curious. So you went from home to college, and then it's my understanding you became a teacher somewhere along the way. No, I was a substitute teacher circa 15 years ago, but that was like one my life. I was never a teacher, although I do feel like what I do now, yes. I'm really good at it. And I feel like it's a talent I have. If, if I had had another life, I probably would have become a teacher of some kind, but I do it. Like I said, on the, I play on, mm-hmm. on the internet, a teacher all the time and counselor and mm-hmm. inspire Coach. and whatever you call me. So no, I went to college, my major, I did a double major, English and poli-sci. I thought I wanted to work like on Capitol Hill and then politics got crazy in the nineties. I'm like, nope, I don't want to do that in my life. Smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I always was really good at writing. Wasn't that great at speaking I, that had to develop later, but the writing has always been there. I took one professor in college, eight different times, Walt, he made us call him Walt. And he looked just like Santa Claus. I mean, he was big beard, mm-hmm. always broken in. <laughs> so Walt would let you rewrite your paper over and over and over again until you got the grades you wanted. So I held the record for a little while. Jimmy Moore rewrote a paper 32 times and going, can I please have an A? Like, I was not giving up till I got an A. Finally, he said, stop. You're not going to get higher. <laughs> I'm like, just give me an A minus. I'll stop. I promise. Tell me what I did wrong. Just not good enough this time. So I learned how to be a really good refined writer from Walt. And so I'm grateful for him because now Keto Clarity, I rewrote a hundred times. Did you really? Right. And even then I didn't feel like it was perfect. And I'm not one of those people that has that perfection mindset. No, but I do want things to be professional and good. And I feel like the success of that book proves it was just that. And so, no, I went into a lot of kind of retail types of jobs, marketing, which I love too, because it let me learn how to interact with people. I have a natural rapport with people that I still have today. In fact, I think those skills transferred to what I do today. So when I meet people in person, I kind of know interpersonal relationships and how to talk to people. People also feel like they know me because they've heard my voice for years on the Live in La Vida Low Carb show and everything else that I do. So I tell people everything I did up until what I do now prepared me for what I do now. I did a little bit of Christian radio in the 90s, 88.5 FM, WODC, your lighthouse in Virginia Beach. It's sad. I still know that all these years later. Uh, (laughs) And then I actually worked at another Christian radio station that was like one of those more traditional ones mm-hmm. with the oh, music mm-hmm. and the and, and you had to change the tone. They wouldn't like the chipper Jimmy. I had to go WPMH AM 1010. I'm like, oh, 
that's not me. <laughs> well, but you know, it's interesting. You and Abel James share that kind of theatrical voice. Like you both have very distinctive voices and I enjoyed listening to your podcast together for many different reasons, but listening yeah. to both of you, I was like, there's absolutely somewhere in Jimmy's past. And what's interesting is, so I do a lot of research before I bring a podcast guest on. Cause I actually enjoy that. There wasn't a lot, you know, the blip from college, like all I got was yeah. poli sci major. I didn't even get the English major. And so in my mind, I was thinking, how did we get from there to becoming an author? Like how did the book writing process even start? Well, and here's the thing, like a lot of people, they'll say, well, what did you do right before you started low carb? And I tell them I worked in kind of a customer service type job. They never go before that. So it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, there was this big gap between college and then starting low carb. And I mean, I got a master's degree as well. So I went back and got my master's in public policy. I already had poli sci under my belt. Why not go and add public policy? And I am trying to impact public policy when it comes to nutrition and health. Yeah. So let's not kid ourselves. I can't use that someday, but right now it's just the English I used. But no, the, you said something about the writing. I didn't have anything formal with the writing. I just knew, I knew when I was in the fourth grade, fourth grade, I had Mrs. Grolemond was my fourth grade English teacher. And she read from the Judy Bloom novels about fudge and she just made it so fun. And I'm like, I'm going to be a writer someday. So I that in the, fourth, in the eighth grade, the teacher that was about 10 years older than God, when she was teaching, she's an old lady. Really she, old. Yes. She was this old curmudgeon and, oh, I guess she didn't like me. Maybe I reminded her of somebody in her life that she didn't like, but I won the poetry contest in the whole school writing a poem that I was so bored in her class. In five minutes, I wrote this poem called The Cheetah and I won the big poetry contest and she put me in remedial English in high school. No. Yeah. And I went to that English class in ninth grade. I remember the first two days I was running circles around everybody because she's like, all right, class, tell us what a noun is. <laughs> Nobody else knew. And yeah. I kind of because I had always been in advanced English in middle school and all, you know, I won the spelling bee with Erica. We were co-champions because we kept going and they're like, please give them co-champions. They won't miss a word. And so I was always good at English. And so the teacher in the ninth grade is like, why are you in this class? We're going to send you to advanced English. And then I ended up majoring in English in college. And now I'm a three-time international bestselling author, which I wish that old curmudgeon could have lived long enough. I would have sent her autographed copies. I love it. You know, the best revenge is living well, <laughs> right? Yes. Well, I mean, I don't think a teacher should ever squelch someone that they know has talent and it was obvious i won the poetry contest i made all a's in her class why are you sending me to remedial english oh that sounds kind of passive aggressive that's yeah. unfortunate that you know there are educators that are out there it's like i was always told that you know when i was a nurse and a nurse practitioner that when you stopped caring it was time to retire and that there's this kind of crotchety cardiologist when I was in Baltimore. Yeah. And uh, if I were to say his name, I, he would then have no anonymity, but this individual <laughs> was probably, I'm guessing North of 65 and just yeah. really, you know, was just grumpy and pissed off and never took this time with his patients yeah. anymore. The perfect example. It's like, it's time to retire when you stop caring. Yeah. Certainly time to retire. And it certainly sounds like she was in that position. So oh, 
I mean, I was in the eighth grade, so we kind of skew our brains about ages mm-hmm. at that. I thought 50 was old then. And no, 50 is very young now. Correct. Um, but <laughs> she's probably in her 70s, early 70s. Mm-hmm. She was up there. That's unfortunate. And so I know that your brother played a huge influence in your life. You know, I kind of dove down that rabbit hole and, and it was... Yep. I'm sure that had a huge influence on the trajectory of and the direction that your life went to. Now, yes. was it his own experiences with his heart failure issues? It sounds like based on my reading, it sounds like it was a protracted illness of, you know, had a, sounds like an infarct and then had left ventricular yeah. dysfunction and then developed heart yeah. failure. And so was it through his health journey that that started to kind of push you into considering looking at nutrition differently or I had started. So yes, to your question, sorry. Yes. And no towards the end. No, because he knew what I was doing. I'd already been successful in Atkins, but it was 1999. Mm -hmm. My only full-blooded brother, his name was Kevin at the age of 32 had three heart attacks in one week. Like literally had a heart attack and then he got to the hospital, had another heart attack. They were getting ready to discharge him. He had another heart attack and they said he should have died. Morbidly obese, type two diabetes, Mm -hmm. the whole gamut, everything related to insulin resistance, which we now know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, myocardial infarction, it just, it got him good. And it brought his function of his heart down to about 15% of of his his pump. Yeah. And eventually he had to have a pacemaker put in. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, so I come along in 2004 on the Atkins diet, lose a bunch of weight, get healthy. And he hears about it. He's like, hey, little bro, what you do? I said, oh, it's this low carb thing. He said, well, I'll try that. So he did. He went on it and he lost weight. But the problem here, Cynthia, and I see this all the time in people that write to me, they start feeling good. And then they're like, oh, I'm all better now. Yeah. I can go back to eating the way I want to again which is why making the way you eat to change it and making it desirable should be the goal. Mm -hmm. Like I know you're a big proponent of fasting like me. You're not going to tell people, okay, fast for 30 days and then come back to, no, no, you work them up. So it feels sustainable. Mm -hmm. So then they'll go back to it again. If you give them miserableness in what they're doing, guess what? Nobody's going to sustain that human brain doesn't want to do things that make them miserable. So And I tried to help him as much as I could, but he also had a very bad marriage. The woman was physically and emotionally berating and he's no Jimmy Moore, Jimmy strong will. He's kind of a pushover. And so he let do all that. In fact, it was a year after he got married to this woman that he had the heart attack and she held it against him the rest of their marriage. I I think he was just angry that how dare you have a heart attack? Never mind. She probably helped instigate it along with Mm -hmm. his bad and choices. But yeah, it's one of those things that when he died in 2008, he was 41. It was devastating to the family. I started regaining weight about that time. I had lost 180 pounds in 2004, pretty much kept it off. And since 2008, when that happened, and I'm not saying it's the only thing, but that was a big trigger for me. And I get a lot of flack because, well, you're not a perfect size now. And I'm like, okay, but I've had some shit happen in my life Mm -hmm. and there's some things I don't talk about publicly because I'm not allowed to talk about them publicly that if you heard about them, they would make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up about what I'm going through. And this is a lesson here that we don't know what people are going Mm -hmm. through. 
And it's like, be kind, be supportive, be compassionate. If people are pursuing something about health, even if it's something you don't agree with, if they're pursuing health, they're 9,000% on the right track of whatever they're doing. Support them. If somebody wanted to be on a vegan diet right now, Cynthia, and they felt like they're going to do well and they're trying to be healthy, I'm going to be supportive, even though I think it's a horrible diet for people to go on carte blanche without a reason. So you got my hot button topics going. (laughs) I just like this judgmentalness of other people's choices in food. Come on. Like there's more things to worry about in this world. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armra Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armra's colostrum strengthens immunity ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG 
N-SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And Armrest Colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Well, I think on so many levels, even if I reflect back on like where I trained at a big research institution, well-respected research institution, you know, the information that I received during my medical education was useless to be able to counsel my patients, all of whom were sick. I mean, in cardiology, you generally don't get the worried well, very rarely. You generally get people who have existing blockages, existing heart issues, vascular paths. That was our fancy way of saying you've got head to toe, you know, uh, vessel disease, diabetic, et cetera. And, you know, here I am telling them to eat a heart healthy, you know, carbohydrate focused diet, avoid animal protein, don't eat that butter, eat the, you know, better balance or whatever garbage, Brummel and Brown. I mean, all those faux vegetable oil things. And I so agree with you that it's meeting people where they are. Country, your patient. country crock, I think was the best. Yes. Truthizing. Yeah. It's a crock. All right. Don't put that shit in your mouth. <laughs> but I think about the fact that, you know, these missed opportunities because what I was suggesting based on what I was taught was not sustainable. People were hungry all the time. They overate the food they were given and it raised their insulin. And so you know, irrespective of how healthcare providers kind of come on this journey, I started questioning everything when I had a child with severe life-threatening food allergies. That's what got me down the rabbit hole of thinking everything starts with food. And my peers thought I was nuts. I mean, they would placate me. They're like, oh, the nurse practitioner, she's really into nutrition. And they would send people to me. And 99.9% of the time, people were like, I don't want to change my diet. I like my diet. I feel good when I eat my diet. And I'm like, okay, well, you have to not feel good or you have to have a reason to want to make a change to make it sustainable. And much to your point, nothing is sustainable if it isn't satiating, if you don't feel good with where you do it, or if you feel deprived because, you know, irrespective if it's someone says, I want to be able to fast for the next six months. I want to be able to go lower carb. I want to be able to eat more vegetables. It could be as simple as I just want to eat more green things on my plate that aren't created in a lab and I'm all for it. But I would probably imagine that when I started this journey as a healthcare provider, I was probably a little judgy, not on purpose. Like I'm a very nice, compassionate person, but what we were told was, oh, it's, you know, that patient lost control. That patient isn't trying hard enough and it couldn't be farther from the truth. By the way, as a word nerd, I love that you said irrespective instead of irregardless because <laughs> guys didn't know irregardless is not a word. Irrespective yes. word is either regardless or irrespective, but not irregardless. Yes. No, I have a father who is a bit of an intellectual snob and addiction was important and the utilization of 
proper words. Like one day I was, my 13 year old dropped the word loquacious. And someone was like, what did he just say? And I was like, he knows how to use it properly too. <laughs> Cause he hears me use it, but I'm like, you know, the $10 word, not on purpose, but yes, I think that's highly important. Language is and subtleties are not appreciated enough. I, I talked to one friend, she's a Gen Z or she's 23. And she's like, Jimmy, I learned like four or five new words every time I talk to you. I'm like, <laughs> look up. She does. She like writes them down and then doesn't know how to spell them. So she looks that up and then she looks up the definition. Oh, that's what he meant. Like five minutes in our conversation. It, it's funny. But you have to appreciate the fact that she wants to understand and learn it as opposed to, you know, and I have teenagers, so I can say this, they're growing up in a culture where they don't, yeah. and I'm going to date myself by saying this, but when I was writing papers and I was a poli-sci major the first time around and pre-law, I would pull out like my synonym book or my antonym book to try it because there was no internet searching. Right. You would sit there and write a paper with my word processor, by the way, because my parents had three kids in college and there's no way that, you know, in the early 1990s, they could afford three computers. And I would sit with like all these resources on my laps and my kids were like, you had to do what? And I was like, yes, back in the olden days, this is how we wrote you papers. Google mom, where yeah, was there's Google? No Google. <laughs> <laughs> there's yes, no Google. If, I, if I had all the tools the kids have now, I'd have ran circles around everybody. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of resources. There's definitely a lot of resources. So I find everyone's journeys fascinating. So you're in it, this incredible writer you get from point A to point B. And it's always retrospective that we can look back and say all these dots align now. But at the time, I'm like, I'm kind of haphazardly going through my life. So you started with changing your diet and doing Atkins. And what got you to the point where you must've been on someone's radar to write a book, obviously. And Keto Clarity is a book. I know you wrote Cholesterol Clarity first, but Keto Clarity is like my recommendation when people are looking for literally clarity. I usually send them to your book, but what got you on the radar? There must've been a publishing house or someone you got connected to that said, okay, you've got something worth sharing. So I had already self-published a couple of books before Victory Belt Publishing came along. So it was right after I lost the weight in 2004 was when I lost the weight, 2005. I'm just going to write a book about my experience. It was a little Bobo book. I don't even talk about that one because it's bad. It was a cheap little self-publishing imprint. I'm just like, uh, and plus part of the journey, part of the journey. I'm glad I got it out of the way. Get the worst one out first and all the rest will be great. (laughs) But no, I mean, for me, my philosophy changed because that first book was about, oh, look at my weight loss journey, which was great. Not, I mean, 180 pounds is pretty badass. So I wasn't ashamed of it. But what I quickly learned was, okay, the weight was just kind of bonus. What happened for me was I came off of three prescription medications. What happened for me was I was able to live better, feel better all these subjective things. I could sleep better, handle stress better. The resiliency we were talking about earlier. My brain just went on fire. I was always intelligent, but it felt like it took it to a whole new level. And I now know it's the ketones that were contributing to that. So I did that book in 2005. I did a follow-up book in 2009. The one in 2009, I do claim, uh, 21 Life Lessons from Living La Vida Low Carb is what I called it. And it was just all of these things I had learned in my journey of blogging at that time and a little bit of podcasting. And it sold over 10,000 copies. And when you sell 10,000 as a self-published author, that gets their attention. But I also 
simultaneously was still doing the podcast, I had one of the very first health podcasts out there. When I started the Living Libido Low Carb Show in 2006, the iPhone didn't exist yet. Like I'm dating myself now. <laughs> And by the time I heard from a publisher in 2012, I had about 600 something episodes already. I'm now at 1800 episodes now of that show and a million other shows I do now. So, but yeah, that was what got their attention was we love your platform and looks like your self-published book. Your second one did really well. Want to write books for us. I'm going to tell a quick story about a publisher that I pitched to about a year before Victory Belt came to me. It was Rodale. Rodale Books was the big health publisher at the time. I mean, and they still kind of are a little bit, but they were putting out all these books. So they were coming to me as a podcaster. Hey, we've got a brand new book. It's about health. Can you have them on your show? Sure. They did that over and over and over again, Cynthia. And you know, you get pitched all these books all the time too. And finally, I was just like, after about 12, 13 of these authors on my show, they must think I have a good platform. Maybe they would like to have me write for them. So I put in a pitch for a book about ketosis. Mm -hmm. And this is 2011. I had just written to them, put the proposal together. They wrote me back right away and like, why would we make you an author? <laughs> Apparently in their mind, I had a big enough platform to promote their authors, but I was not talented enough to be an author. So then when Victory Belt came along a year later and said, we want you to be an author, I could not wait to succeed and rub it in Rodell's face. And now three-time international best-selling author. Yep. Well, you realize that your book with Jason Fung is the book that definitely solidified my decision to really look seriously at intermittent fasting. I think that people assume that I kind of fell into it on my own and it was really very serendipitous. And I kept saying, if there are, you know, well-respected people in, you know, kind of the low carb space, you know, the medical space that espouse and embrace this, then it's something I should think about not realizing what would then come a couple of years later but, you know, for me, the one thing that I really appreciate about you as an author is the clarity, you know, it's not designed, yes. let me backtrack and say that there are a lot of people that write books to show us how smart they are. Yes. There are a lot of people who take very complicated, subtle nuances and present it in a way that people can read it and understand it. And the latter is far more important than the former. Because yeah. you can write when, in science text. The real important thing is, can you write in a way that the average person can pick the book up right. and they don't feel like they have to pull out, I'm dating myself a thesaurus to figure out what it is that you're trying to well, explain or share with them. And when Victor Belt came to me, they're like, well, you seem to like to talk about science stuff. So they had this kind of preconceived notion in their head of what that would be. I pitched them keto, by the way, first. I know I did cholesterol clarity mm -hmm. first, but I pitched them the keto and they're like, eh, this is 2012. And niche of the niche, nobody cares. Paleo was kind of the big diet at mm -hmm. the time. They were a big paleo publisher. And I'm like, you're wrong. Keto, paleo won't last forever. Keto will be the next diet trend. Mm -hmm. I told them that almost 10 years ago. And they're like, yeah, what else you got? I'm like, Ugh. okay. <laughs> I wanted to write about the cholesterol thing. Cause you know, I've always had higher cholesterol and there's reasons why. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one. That's the one. And I told them, I said, I feel like my niche is not to write another nerdy book. I can, I can go there, 
but my thrill as an author and as a communicator is how do I make the nerdy palatable so I can say it in a way that people will enjoy it, embrace it and go, oh, I wonder what gluconeogenesis is. Then they go get nerdy because they got inspired by me to be nerdy with the word to begin with. Otherwise, I remember I was at one conference. I got to go to a lot of these obesity conferences with Dr. Westman and Dr. Folick and Dr. Finney and all the big superstars in ketogenic research. And they'd be talking about all this like PNK pathway. And I'm just going, uh, dude, you got to like explain what that means to me. Right. Like I follow you conceptually. It's just so far, but give me a little bit of explanation and then I can regurgitate it. And I just developed that over the years. And even now, People are like, well, Jimmy Moore just doesn't understand the science. And I'm going, no, I understand it fully. I don't speak that language because that's not my audience. Right. And appreciate that. And I think that's why uh, Keto Clarity eventually did so well, which, by the way, Cholesterol Clarity, after a year, they say, okay, write the Keto book. And then Keto Clarity came out and in one week sold just as many copies of Keto Clarity as Cholesterol Clarity did the whole first year. They're like, oh, we see now. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that you were able to persist. And for anyone that's listening, when I worked in cardiology and when I worked in the ER as a nurse, one of my roles was to take what a physician said to a patient and then explain it to the patient in a way that they understood it. And so I, I used to feel very strongly, and I still feel very strongly, that anyone can just regurgitate a bunch of medical ease. It yes. takes someone with finesse who can take complicated concepts, break them out. So I'd always say, okay, well, Dr. So-and-so just said this, what he's really saying is this. And then people are like, oh, now I get it. And so I feel like in many ways, your books are written in such a way. And for listeners, I mean, I'm saying this genuinely from the heart. That's why I'm kind of like trying not to geek out talking to Jimmy, but like your books are written in a way that it makes information accessible. And if information is accessible, it's actionable. And I think that's really critically important because there are plenty of authors that are out there that try to show us how smart they are. And and I struggle when I'm doing podcasts because I could get nerdy, like really nerdy, but I recognize like what I really want, like what is the intent of this podcast? It's so that And it's predominantly a female base, but we do have male listeners so that people can take actionable, like how do I distill the best about this person's work so that someone can be inspired to make changes or go buy a book or take, you know, some type of actionable, actionable intent, as opposed to going, what in the world did they just say? Like every once in a while, I'll get a researcher on and they'll dive down a rabbit hole. And then I have to say, okay, and what Dr. So-and-so was saying is because the listeners just gone, I don't know what they just said. And and my interview style is such that I understand all that alphabet Mm -hmm. soup that comes out of a lot of these, all these people's mouths. If I hear it and then I go, my lowest common denominator listener, and that sounds horrible to say it that way, but I want any listener, Mm -hmm. this is the first thing listening to any podcast, and they hear some XYZ PDQ and they don't know what that means. I'll be like, so for those of you that don't know, that means da 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 da. And then the guests will usually go, oh, yeah, that's right. So it gets so yeah. caught up, especially a lot of these researchers. I had mm-hmm. Dr. Ben on recently, I love Ben, but he had some XYZ PDQ that was like, all right, stop, Ben. <laughs> but, and so I always do that on the spot kind of interpretation and I get feedback from that all the time. Thank you. I love you. that. No, they appreciate that. 
Asprey or they'll listen to Ben Greenfield and those guys go way nerdy and God bless them. And I love listening to their podcasts, but even sometimes my eyes glaze over trying to keep up with all the medical ease. Well, and it's interesting. I was listening to one of Dave's podcasts, gosh, probably in the last like four to six weeks. And he was talking about autophagy and they had this autophagy researcher on. And I just took out a pad of paper and started writing because to me, it was like, I had to kind of get it all on paper and then I could process it. And then I was like, okay. And then I reached out to this researcher and said, I'd really love to have you on because I get more questions about autophagy and I'm not an autophagy expert. I just happen to know a little bit about a topic you know a lot about. But I think that it's always in the context of, And knowing your listener, like knowing what is going to appeal to them, you know, what is their purpose for listening? And I think accessibility of information, given that, you know, I'm not standing on a platform of I'm doing my doctoral thesis in this area. I feel like as an NP, that's really the platform that we come from. One of the best compliments I got for Keto Clarity, for example, is in the Amazon reviews, Mm -hmm. because I had simultaneous reviews that were a paradox. I would, one, have people say, this is the most simple, dumbed down, you could Google any of this information, blah, 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 blah. And simultaneous to that, this is the hardest book I've ever read in my (laughs) life. I don't understand anything. He needed to make it a lot easier. When you have the dichotomy like that, you struck the perfect chord. Right, exactly. And I mean, here's the thing. I'm in the midst of like my gazillion you know, editing rewrite for a book that will come out in early 2022. And I kept saying to my editor, who's been fantastic through this process, I just said, I sometimes lean, like I want to start talking really deeper into the science. And then I'm realizing like, who is the book for? I just have to keep reminding myself, who's the book for? Because you want to strike that middle ground so that someone can find the information to be accessible, give enough of the science so that you can substantiate what you're saying but inevitably I'll have the same people, the same comments. So be people saying it's too simplistic and then someone saying it's too complicated. So, you know, well, somewhere and, in between is where you're aiming for. And the balance of that is having boxes off to the side that get mm-hmm. either nerdy or get real soft. So my natural yeah. flow is softer, more explanatory. Whereas I had these things in the clarity books called moment of clarity quotes. So mm-hmm. I had some researchers and doctors and people, and I've told them, don't worry about your language, go nerdy. Cause I'm explaining in my text. Mm-hmm. So I think a nice mix of both is probably healthy. Then you appease both. Although mm-hmm. some will go, you should have been nerdy the whole time, or right. you should have explained it the whole time. I still hold true to make it accessible so people want to learn more and then they go to the nerdy stuff. Like I want them to read Keto Clarity and then go read The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Living from Volick and Finney because it gets a little more complicated, but then you'll understand it after you read my book. Yep, it's like a primer. And so getting back to cholesterol clarity, because obviously I wrote and addressed a lot of lipid disorders over nearly 20 years, What do you think are some of the more common misconceptions about cholesterol as it pertains to kind of the allopathic Western medicine kind of mindset about cholesterol? Because I think the average person is still really fearful of cholesterol, whether it's their triglycerides or the HDL or the LDL. No, I wish it was they were fearful of triglycerides. No, allopathic medicine doesn't even mention triglycerides. They don't give a crap about oh, triglycerides. I used to talk about them all the time. I was like, you're eating too many donuts. <laughs> sick. I used to talk about triglycerides a lot because I had the classic. Hey, you did. Yeah, but- I know. I'm weird. Yes. 
all they are so obsessed with LDLC and total. They're like going to die on their deathbed with Mm -hmm. those two numbers mattering. And I always counter that. And I did in my book with LDLC is the only number on your entire panel that's calculated, estimated. Friedwald equation, they don't directly measure that unless they do the advanced like NMR lipo profile or VAP test or one of these other ones that kind of breaks down the particles. But that's the only one that they kind of guesstimate. And then if you eat keto or low carb and you fast and you've got low triglycerides under 100, you've got HDL over 50, it's going to miscalculate that LDL. And yet we everything regarding pharmaceutical Lipitor, Crestor, and all the other kind of statins in this new one. If the statins aren't enough, try this one with the statins. So it's like they keep that alive mm-hmm. based solely on LDL cholesterol and total. I call LDL cholesterol and total cholesterol the calories of lipids. Until that theory dies, people will still believe yeah. it. Calories right. when it comes to your health doesn't really matter when it comes to nutrition. Yes, calories count. You just don't have to count them. Hormones trump it. And same with LDL in total. If we paid attention to the triglyceride to HDL ratio, we would catch most cardiovascular issues long before they happen. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting for me because I was always on the high triglycerides and I would have, sometimes I would have patients triglycerides that were 600, 900. And I was like, how, how they don't have pancreatitis yet. I mean, that's a miracle, but so anytime, and typically what you would see in like metabolic syndrome is you would have elevated triglycerides, low HDL. And then I would have to have this conversation of, you know, your triglycerides, it's really a reflection of what you're eating. And so we would have that whole discussion, but I happen to be one of those people that even though I'm low carb, bordering on ketogenic most of the time. And I fast, obviously my total cholesterol and my LDL are always high. And it's always this source of contention. My primary care provider, you know, kind of shakes their finger and we do a, you know, the VAP, which is this advanced lipid analysis. And what I think is really interesting. So for anyone that's listening, when we're looking at particle size, there's certain, and you may do a better job at this than I'm going to, when we're looking at particle size, there's, you know, light and fluffy, and then there's kind of dense and smaller. And one is predictably more atherogenic, more disease provoking than the other. And what's interesting is statins address the light fluffy, which I always think of light and fluffy, like a floating cloud. It's kind of happy. It's like a balloon as opposed to, it really doesn't address the atherogenic option. And so that wasn't something I knew when I was practicing. And I'm almost like mortified to admit this publicly because the standard medical therapy was if you have vascular disease, it's aspirin, it's a statin, it's this, it's this. And the joke was we jokingly cardiology would say, we need to put statins in the water. Cause we just felt like it was this magic drug. It was anti-inflammatory for great for plaque stabilization. And then later you find out it causes this slew of other health problems. So anyway. Well, and it's even worse than that because uh, here, let me back up and do my spiel. So yes, you have pattern A, which is the large, fluffy, buoyant kind of LDL cholesterol And that's the healthy kind. Mm -hmm. It can't penetrate the arterial wall. The particles are too big. It's when they're small, dense BB size. They're called pattern B for bad. That's how you can remember it. Pattern A is awesome. Pattern B is bad. And so those B particles will penetrate the arterial wall. How do you get small, dense LDL particles? 
refined carbohydrates is a big instigator in that. And you're right, statin drugs do attack the large fluffy kind, but something else does too that is promoted as healthy. And I called them the twin villains in our health. I, I mentioned refined carbohydrates. The other one, seed oils, vegetable oh, oils. All of them, they lower the LDLC, but they do it sacrificing your large dense LDL. And here's the or large fluffy LDL and leaves you behind the small dense. But here's the extra. They oxidize the small dense LDL. So if you know oxidation is kind of like when you leave your bike out in the rain, it rusts. You're basically making yourself a sitting target. Even though your cholesterol goes down, you're at higher risk for heart disease. That's what happened to Tim Russert from Meet the Press. I told I this story. So sad died in like 52, 53 years old of his very first heart attack with a 105 total cholesterol. The man should have been the prime example of health if it was just about cholesterol. What they didn't, and they never do this, they never look at a CT heart scan, the CAC score. If you don't know what that is, go get one now. I promise you, it's peace of mind. You want to know if you actually have heart disease developing? CAC score cost me 100 bucks here in South Carolina. It's as high as 300, I think, in Cali. But get your doctor to prescribe it, not the one with the contrast. That one's hella expensive and you don't need that much radiation. But get this three-minute test and it will tell you, do you have atherosclerotic plaque? But the other thing, they don't always talk about inflammation like HSCRP, IGF-1, homocysteine. All of those kind of clearly show you if you're at risk or not. And if those are in the normal range, it doesn't make a hill of beans difference what your LDLC and total cholesterol is. Well, that's a beautiful explanation. And, and the irony is I told my healthcare provider last week that I was like, maybe I need to go for a CAC score, because that's what I would oftentimes refer. If we had young people that had crazy high LDLs and their VAPs were abnormal, I'm like, I'm not putting this person on a stat. And that's the last thing I want to do. Because I told her, I said, there's no way that's happening. So let's just do the study and then we'll check the box. So for me, I can't get life insurance because of my cholesterol. They're like, your cholesterol is over 300. So you're not eligible to even have life insurance. They wouldn't even like give me a high price policy. They're just like, we're not going to write you a a policy because we put all of the eggs in the basket of what your total cholesterol is. And I'm like, that's old science. I was showing all these studies of the (laughs) copy of my book, like, and they're just like, nope, we've got, and it's like, I feel like there is a business opportunity Mm -hmm. for some company out there to become like an insurance company. And the underwriters understand the keto numbers. Oh, if you have triglycerides under a hundred, oh, that's a bonus. Oh, you have HDL over 50. That's a bonus. Oh, you have inflammation under two. That's a bonus. Like how cool would that be? I wish Mm -hmm. I had the money to invest in that. Are you familiar with Dave Feldman's lean hyper responder hypothesis? Yeah. I had Dave on the podcast towards the end of last year and totally geeked out over what he was talking about and said, I wonder if like that boy that there's nerdy, that boy came up to me at low carb bail. This is like six, seven years ago. You're Jimmy Moore. (laughs) Like brain dumped on me. And I'm just like, dude, I just got off a plane. Can I like relax? (laughs) But he's so good. He's so good. No, I mean, I'm married to an engineer and I said, you know, I understand the way an engineer's brain works. I mean, they're problem solvers. And I said, we had to have an engineer come along to turn the medical community like on their head to think differently about 
how we think about cholesterol. Like I always think about Ted Naiman. I mean, I think he was an engineer before he went to medical school and he's always kind of flipping things around. So, you know, from my perspective, I always say I'm going to be a lifelong learner. So, you know, for me to learn different things about cholesterol, even at this point with a lot of medical training and a lot of cardiology work (laughs) says quite a bit. So what are some of the common misconceptions? So let's flip to keto just for a minute. I find that people get keto wrong on many levels because, you know, and a lot of women get this wrong. And I think women as a rule, just sometimes don't tolerate as much healthy fat, like too much of any one thing is not beneficial, but I will see women that think they can eat like their husband and they think they can have a pound of butter and five avocados and, you know, two cups of nuts every day. And I'm like, it doesn't really work that way. So what I see people getting wrong with keto is oftentimes they don't understand, like there could be healthy fats in that piece of meat that they ate. So they don't like, you have a salmon steak, you don't need to add like five pounds of butter on top of that. Right. But it's the added fats that are cumulative. Like I always say, you want to burn your fat as opposed to eat your fat. If you, you know, have to make the differentiation, but what are some of the more common mistakes that you see people making? I think the biggest thing and the biggest mistake I hear is this is not a keto food. Keto is not nutrition. Keto is a metabolic state. Mm -hmm. And like somebody is a hardcore athlete, their keto is going to have maybe 100, 150 grams of bananas and sweet potatoes and tapioca and whatever else they want to have in there. And yet they use those carbs strategically, Mm -hmm. put themselves into the best athletic performance, but then they test their ketones and they're in great ketosis. Then you've got people that are heavily metabolically resistant and they're not able to handle even a little bit of carbohydrates. So maybe they lean more towards carnivore and that's their keto. I just, I feel like it became so tribal within keto of, well, keto is this food's keto, this food's not keto. And if you don't follow it, you're not doing keto. I'm just like, that was stupid. Like, come on people. If somebody's getting the benefits of ketosis, why are we poo-pooing the way they got there? Why do you care, number one? And why do we think that you have to have higher and higher and higher levels on a meter while you will early on? It always levels out. And my goal, Cynthia, has always been, I want to use the exact number of ketones that I produce Mm -hmm. so that really my ketone levels are as close to zero as they possibly can be. And I had somebody challenge me on that. Well, if there were zero, you'd be out of ketosis. I'm like, how do you know if you're making and using at the simultaneous rate, shouldn't it be zero? Makes sense. Yeah. And so, and I know right now, if I tested ketosis, I tend to be on the lower level. I've done this a very long time. Until I fast, fasting for several days is when they start to jump. But in my day-to-day, I don't show real super high levels of ketones. And yet, you can see my energy. My brain is sharp. I've got all the benefits of ketosis, even though some stupid meter that some man made told me uh, I'm in ketosis. I use this one here. It's a breath meter, yep. the FDA breath meter. And I love this thing. And But it'll show like the equivalent of 0.4, 0.6. And it's like super low on the ketones. And yet I know just empirically, subjectively, what I see in myself, I've got ketones flowing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And it's interesting to me. I do technically have a ketone meter, but I don't like to stick myself. I'll be completely transparent. I wear a CGM. I don't mind having that on my arm. Yep. (laughs) This one called BioSense. Okay. I think Melanie Avalon talks about that. 
the only FDA approved ketone meter that's out there. Well, breath meter. So I'm yeah. saying that the keto coach one just got FDA approval for their blood meter. And I love that blood meter. If you're going to test blood keto coach, this is the biosense and don't bother with the pea strips. They're gross and they're highly inaccurate anyway. Yeah. Well, and, and it's interesting. There was a, a book that a colleague of mine wrote and I was part of like her launch thing. And so just for shits and giggles, I decided oh, I'm going to pee on the ketone strips. And I was like, oh, I've been in ketosis for so many years that, you know, these urine strips are irrelevant because I had people freaking out. They're like, oh my God, what's wrong? I'm like, no, 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 no. You've been doing this for such a long period of time. <laughs> it's well, and that's let me nerd out and give my spiel on that. Yep. So the ketone that's in the urine is called acetoacetate. And so once your body gets used to making ketones, that acetoacetate actually gets converted into the usable form in the blood called beta-hydroxybutyrate. And so acetoacetate goes down, thus you don't see it on the thing. But what happens is beta-hydroxybutyrate goes way up. And this process happens very quickly within that first two to four weeks. So if you're using the urine strips to pee to see if you're in ketosis, don't go beyond maybe a couple of weeks because once you're keto adapted, that shift from acetoacetate to beta-hydroxybutyrate happens, you disappear in the acetoacetate, which is why you need to be testing a way to test for BHB. Now this here, the biosense tests for the third one, acetone, and acetone runs parallel to BHB, the beta-hydroxybutyrate. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one, -on -one, interpreting your data, and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12 month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. At some point, we've all been sold a big 
fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. With five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today risk free. They have a 365 day full money back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. And the BHB is the one that crosses the blood brain barrier. And that's the one that, you know, Jimmy's talking about how amazing he feels and why I generally can like power through my morning with so much mental clarity because it's a preferred source of fuel for the brain. But yeah, I think the biggest things I see people wanting to buy ketone esters because they think that will get them into ketosis faster. And I would say it's kind of expensive, although in the public speaking world, and I don't know if you've seen this, there are biohackers who like to use them if they suspect they're going to be dealing with not that we've been doing a lot of travel, but if they're going to be dealing with adjusting for time zones and they have to get up on the stage and speak. And so sometimes they'll use them in that instance. But what are your thoughts on ketone esters? I am a fan of both BHB salts, the exogenous ketones and ketone esters strategically. If you had a bad night's sleep, if it's a little more stressful day, if you have some exercise performance reason that you need a little extra energy. I think strategically using them, what I hate is these people, well, I drank my ketones today. I'm like, why? What what was the purpose? Exogenously enough. But I've done experiments with the BHB ketone esters. Woo! You have a lot of energy. (laughs) Forehand. It's the keto aid, ketone aid product and the guy's really nice frank sends me a bunch of those things all the time and he's like tell me what you think and they got these little and they taste like jet fuel they're disgusting Mm -hmm. but you shoot it down i had like a 0.7 to start and within about 20 minutes it jumps up to like three or four in the ketones but the thing is it goes up really fast and then crash but like Mm -hmm. when it goes up so fast like brain is (laughs) fire like literally i feel flames coming out of my head and i'm very super aware super sharp one time i flipped my tire when i was in the midst of that (laughs) it was cool because i was in a fasted state Mm -hmm. which made that happen faster and yeah it was kind of this buzz the whole time it was like i wanted to get that energy out of me um and so 
bad thing is this very fast bleeding about 45 minutes to 75 minutes worth of kind of this burst. And it's just high out and that's it. Exogenous ketones, they usually last about 90 minutes for me, 90 to 120. And it's this slow little rise and then it's this slow little fall. So my point is, Okay, if you have a short term need for something like that, sure. But don't think that, well, I'll just drink this and it'll give me energy all day. No, it's gone very quick. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, the the context of when they were recommended to me as I was supposed to speak in Asia at the beginning of 2020, preceding the the pandemic. And so unfortunately was not able to travel. And I think I felt, you know, I kind of randomly was cleaning out a box before we moved and found them. And I was like, God, I don't even know if they're any good anymore, but it was with the purpose of your, you're, you're going to be 12 or 13 hours ahead of where your body thinks yeah. you should be. And you may need this to be mentally clear, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I have spoken in Australia three times. I've done three tours over the past 10 years. And it's the same thing. Like you're, yeah getting there. And literally my, my travel tip is try to go a little bit early rest and then you're ready to go. Mm-hmm. And that's what I do when I go to that part of the world. You can't always do that time-wise and with your schedule yeah. and everything and try to go in about two to three days early because mm-hmm. it's a good day and a half, two days to really just kind of go. I have no idea what time it is. I remember the first time I went to Australia, 30 six and a half hours straight from South Kakalaki all the way to my final destination in Australia from layover in LA, the long ass flight. It's like 15 hour flight to Australia. By the time I got there, it was already like a day and a half later Mm -hmm. in Australia. (laughs) It was so weird because I was like, I lost a whole day. I missed it. It was like in the morning. He's like, Hey Mike, you want to go out for breakfast? I'm like, I want bed. I need a (laughs) bed. He's like, Oh, true, Mike. I do it all the time. I'm like, "Uh, uh, uh, to (laughs) meet people today. I was going, if you want me to be anything like the Jimmy people know, you better let me rest. (laughs) It's important that you know your body. We're we're gonna be doing a big trip in September and I'm already kind of mentally, I know what it's like to go to this continent. And so, you know, we're flying through Europe in route to where we're going to end up. And I know I'm going to be upside down for a couple of days, but because I know what to anticipate, it won't be nearly as tough as I think it's, if you go like six to eight hours ahead, it's not nearly as bad. Like when you hit 12 plus going that way is a little better than going Correct. The way East is yeah. always harder. I mean, even when I go to the West Coast, I feel sick for a couple of days. Like I just can't yeah. get it together. Yeah. And I remember I spoke at the 2015 conference, Tim Noakes conference. I was, mm-hmm. there was all doctor, 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 Jimmy Moore, doctor, 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 doctor. It was kind of cool. I was like, I was like the only lay person there speaking, but I remember they're like, Jimmy, and this is the first day I was here. Jimmy, go introduce the next speaker because I'd introduced a few of them. I knew most of them, but Dr. Robert Silas at the time, nobody knew Carb Addiction Doc at the time. He wasn't that big. They're like, go introduce Robert. I'm like, I have no idea who he is, guys. I can't introduce somebody. I don't know. Well, go, 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 go. I was like, and I'm like exhausted, tired. (laughs) I get up there. This is no lie. And Robert laughs about this now. I get up there and I go, so the next speaker is... Somebody, I have no idea who this guy is. Like, anybody know who this guy is? Really? Hello? Everybody started laughing. And it's like, I don't know. Let's see what he's got to say. Dr. Robert Cyrus. And he comes. 
I immediately go off the stage and right to my bed uh, in the hotel and go to sleep. I wake up hours later and I go up to Robert. I'm like, I am so sorry. I was just like, I was so tired. I don't know who you are. He's like, dude, that was the best. The <laughs> best. Me. On that, that stage, he was probably one of the least known people he's known now. But mm-hmm. at that time. Nobody knew who he was. He said, that was the perfect way to introduce me. I'm like, okay, Jimmy got lucky. <laughs> yeah, no, it <laughs> sounds like it worked out really well. So one of the things that I fervently believe you're known for is, you know, pointing out misconceptions, identifying bias, you know, being fully transparent. And so when we're looking at social media as one example What do you think is going on now, you know, without, you know, getting political, what do you think is changing? You know, why is the narrative changing? Is it fear-based? Is it purely based on economics? What do you think is driving a lot of the issues that we're starting to see about being able to express opinions freely? What's fun to me, Cynthia, is people think this is new. Mm -hmm. Those of us in the alternative health space, we have felt this for a long time. Go talk mm-hmm. to Joe Mercola. Go to some of these guys that have been around for the longest time. They will tell you. They have throttled us. They have shadow banned us. They have heavily, heavily censored us long before 2020. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it's been ramped up. And, yes, it's more overt now than it's ever been. But from a covert standpoint, they've been doing this. Google searches have been throttled. Mm-hmm. They changed algorithm like three years ago so that all of us that had all these wonderful like highly ranked posts in google it just went away i remember joe mercola talked about losing 99 percent of his traffic because that's what was so much to his articles and so this ain't new so why Mm -hmm. i mean i suppose there's a myriad of reasons why there's a lot of kind of forces at play trying to force us into veganism And they've even said their stated goal is by 2035, we want to eliminate meat consumption in the United States. And of course, everybody at the time was like, when they saw that stated goal, how are you going to do that? Well, now we see they're messing with the supply chains of the meat. They're kind of pushing people towards these plant-based alternatives for meat. Like subtly they're doing that. I even went to my farmer's market this last weekend trying to get my food and he's like, I only have one thing of something I used to buy a lot of. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, oh, the processors are all backed up. They can't get us in. Them are shut down. And so this is going to affect us directly. And those of us, and I'm a carnivore eater, keto carnivore. So I rely on the animal-based foods. I got backyard chickens so I can go and eat my chickens, but eggs get old after a while. Yeah. I need some- oh, sure. Yeah. So- well, it's interesting to me because I was having a a conversation with a physician on Twitter and probably about a week and a half ago, I was singled out in a thread on social media by a vegan cardiologist who was pretty awful. Joel? Joel No, no, it was a female. Okay. And so, you know, I think I was going to this individual because I felt like it was a safe place to vent. I was like, you know, I haven't really dealt with this before. They didn't attack anyone else in this thread, but it was me. And so I assumed because I wasn't a physician and because I was female, And this individual said, well, you have to understand there have been a lot of us in the low carb community that have been attacked about the CGM, you know, issue using it in non-diabetics or non-insulin resistant individuals. And that was the context of this conversation that she kind of wove herself into. And so it was really interesting to me. I was like, wow, I haven't, I think I've largely been unaffected. 
Was she anti-CGM for non-diabetic non-insulin? She basically said, I'm not practicing what? evidence-based medicine and that I'm harming patients. Like that's the gist of, and my husband got completely like twerk. My husband's very like nice and down to earth, but read through yeah. all her comments and was just like, whoa. And so I'm yeah. not even responding to her anymore. <laughs> it's disappointing because I think having tools, I wear an aura ring so I mm-hmm. can see how my going and heart rate variability and how my readiness ability to go work out and all the things that I do, like there's tools at our tool at our fingertips. Unlike anything we've had in all of human history, use them. Why would you not want to on a CGM? Even if it's the most boring 14 days you've ever seen in your life, you want to see, okay, let me try some things. Let me add back in some quinoa, see how that does. Let me add back in a sweet potato, see what happens. You don't know unless you're testing and that's a convenient way to do it. It just seems odd that a vegan of all people would, and a medical professional at that wouldn't want to know the data. Data is information that can for an informed patient. Well, and I just said, why not educate and inspire and empower your patients? Like that to me is, is far more valuable when I have, you know, female patients that are working with me and, you know, we can't figure out why they can't lose weight. I mean, and we've done all yeah. the other things and I'm like, slap a CGM on them. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, your blood sugar really isn't all that low. <laughs> you, know? Yeah. you know, there might be an issue that we need to look a little more deeply at. So that was really my first foray into that experience. And it was really venomous. And I actually said to my husband, what? I need to oh. be, yeah, I need to be prepared because when the book comes out, there's going to be, you know, you're a sellout, you're a this, you're a that. And, you know, I think it's unfortunate. There are people that have that kind of limiting mindset or living belief that what you're really yes. trying to do is to positively impact more people. Because if I were still in clinic or in the hospital, I might see 10 or 15 patients a day versus now I have the ability to impact a far larger audience of individuals. And still, you know, I still, like I tell people, I'm like, I'm very supportive of my colleagues and, you know, especially the ones that, you know, started maybe in medicine when I did and have really evolved to kind of question a lot of what we were taught. Cause I think that's the one thing, like where I trained, we were even, and I hate saying this, but I do have to say this even though I'm a nurse, because sometimes people assume because I have different credentials after my name, that makes my opinion less valuable, which drives me bananas. That's a whole separate topic. It's important that people understand that, you know, even though you trained in the 1990s or early 2000s, like we're expected to continue to learn throughout our lifetime. Like it shouldn't just stop. And I'm sure for you, you're going to be a lifelong learner. I'm going to be a lifelong learner. That's part of who I am. Well, and on that topic, I have resisted the urge to put letters after my name. I mean, I have a master's degree in public policy, but I don't say Jimmy Moore M.A. Mm -hmm. Uh, I relish in the freedom of not being tied to letters because a lot of times I'll talk to doctors. I'm talking to one tomorrow on my podcast and she's like, there's certain things I can't say. I'm like, that's that's, okay. I can. Uh, And no, it's not that what's being said is wrong. It's just, you have certain entities that have power over you. That's kind of the freedom I love of not having the power of letters dictate what I can say. And I think that's what makes me good at what I do is I can freely say things. Now I don't say things frivolously. There are people online that have this autonomy like me and they just say whatever. And Mm -hmm. it's a lot of like they have Tourette's. It's like, I'm just going to say anything. Right. Yeah. So people accuse me of that. And I'm like, tell me where I'm wrong. Cause I can back up the things I share with 
studies with other links that will kind of corroborate what I'm saying. So I don't just say things willy nilly. And I think that gives me credibility because mm-hmm. everyday people go, well, Jimmy's like us. Because I've been offered honorary PhDs from different universities. I've turned them all down. I don't want to be called doctor. I don't. And by design, because as soon as you have that, you have people discredit what you have to say. Yeah, they give you the appeal to authority credit, but then they're like, well, he says that because he's a doctor. And I'm going, Mm -hmm. okay, no, I don't want that. I want Jimmy more empowered patient. And I like that. I love that. Unfortunately, it is true because I know you know, I just renewed my nurse practitioner licensure. And I was actually trying to explain to my husband, like there are certain things, like my team knows this, like there's certain things we just don't talk about on social media. It's not that I don't have an opinion. It's just that there are people out there who are waiting for healthcare professionals to go against the current narrative about X, Y, or Z, and then they'll report you to the board and you can lose your license. So I I just always say to my team, like there are certain subjects we don't touch. I I of course have personal opinions, but I keep them close to me. And and unfortunately that's just the environment that so many of us exist in that people are are apt to like want to bury someone because they have an opinion about things. You've seen it with dietitians, especially. Mm -hmm. I mean, the dietetic society, they do not like when you go off script of their low high carb diet. They just don't like it. But even like Tim Noakes in South Africa and Gary E and Australia, like Mm -hmm. we've seen some high profile medical people and nutritional health people and dietitians lose their licenses and or have them challenged in court. Like Professor Noakes in South Africa, that basically ruined him financially. He had to it ruined it. I mean, like as a man, it just tore his family down. Now watch what happened all at the holy altar of, he put out a tweet that said babies should be weaned on low carb and Mm -hmm. use low carb foods to kind of make sure they grow up healthy. That's what he wrote. And then two people, dietitians, had their panties in a wad and went and told the medical board. And then he went through this two year trial, which at the very end, Okay, you're vindicated. You didn't really give diet advice. You weren't weren't trying to get medical advice. You just were sharing and they they declared that his thoughts were his thoughts and not from his point of view as a physician. At that point, been a best-selling author and had other roles. And so anyway, the fact that they can do that and run their name through the mud, it has a silencing, a muzzling effect mm-hmm. on others who would even try to skirt the edges of mm-hmm. it. Because I don't think what Professor Noakes did was bad at all. And yet he was run through the coals for it. Yeah, I mean, it, I think there has to you have to have an ability to articulate an opinion in a respectful proper way. And it's interesting. I get more flack on Twitter than I do anywhere else. Twitter is a total hellhole, Cynthia. Get off of there. Well, (laughs) you know what's funny is I actually like, I enjoy because I can get in and get out. Like I can drop my, you know, plan my tweets and come back. And I genuinely, I've actually connected with some really cool people that I brought on the podcast, obviously through Instagram as well. But for me, it's really very telling that there are certain narratives you can't touch on Twitter unless you know for sure that you're going to have the fire, you know, underneath. And it becomes a joke. It's like, okay, how many people am I going to block today? But yes, did I tell you that's where I met up with Dr. John McDougall was on Twitter. He was sitting there talking smack about low carb or something. And I tweeted back. Yeah, I bet you would never say that on my podcast. Oh, did he come on your podcast? And then he came on my podcast 
It's the most infamous episode of Live and La Vida Low Carb Show, episode 686. It was the first episode back after I finished the manuscript for uh, Cholesterol Clarity. <laughs> I wanted to come back with a bang. And I'm like, okay, let's interview a vegan. And so at the first few minutes, the niceties of the beginning of a conversation and then he went full bore personal attack against Jimmy Moore. Why are you so fat? Why are you low carb so wow. good? Why are and I decided at that point, okay, I could be just as contentious back, but just having the conversation, but a little higher pitch than I like to be. Or I could stay calm as a cucumber. Yep. And I decided to do the latter. And people listened to that and they went, wow, he was an ass. You were <laughs> cool. And I even had a lot of vegans write me and go, tell me more about this low carb keto thing. Like they wow. were, that's, they were open-minded by my character, by the way I handled myself. And he looked like a nut job mm -hmm. to them. And you had some people say, Oh, Jimmy Moore got railroaded by Dr. McDougal. Okay, fine. If I got railroaded, I think I got my point across and he was just so off the wall, bizarre. I'm like, I'll let him hang himself. And he did. Well, it's if you ever have 30 minutes of your life, you want to I'm gonna, be- I'm going to, I just wrote it down. I'm like, I'm going to check that out. Cause I went through a lot of your podcasts. Like I mentioned when, it, especially when I'm interviewing another podcaster, it's like, I really want to get a sense of their personality. And so that's why it was nice to hear you on Abel's podcast, because I got to see a little bit of another side when you're the guest and not the host, you get to see oftentimes see another side of an individual. Although of course you're very consistent, but it's nice to kind of see, you know, when you're not in the driver's seat, you know, what angles I, do you make? I like this end of things because I get to be a little more Jimmy. Mm -hmm. Whereas my show, I have to run the ship and I have to kind of keep it moving and Jimmy's in there, but this is like, I'm not running the show. I'm going to throw you a curveball as my interviewer mm -hmm. just to keep it interesting for me. Cause I've done this so long. I've done this over 15 years. I'm kind of bored. Yeah. Well, it's just like I said to you, you know, when we were messaging, I said, you know, I always get asked about certain things when I'm on a podcast and every once in a while, someone will ask me something different. And so yes. really wanting to not just talk to you about keto, not just wanting to talk about cholesterol, yes. you know, wanting to make sure we covered some substantive ground because there's a lot to the Jimmy Moore persona. That was for sure that what came out, like as I was digesting and my 13 year old and I listened to your podcast, you know, picking different episodes all the way to you know, we moved on the 26th. So coming down here, you know, trying to avoid 95 South, which as you know, during the summer is horrible on lots of country roads. So we got to get a, a couple, you know, a, certainly different nuances to your personality. Well, I want to be super respectful because we've been chatting for a while, but let listeners know how to find you. What's the easiest place to find you? You're very active on Instagram, which is where I see you every day, but what's the easiest way to connect with you? Yeah, I have a website that's super easy to remember. It stands for Live and La Vida Low Carb, LLVLC.com. It's the big hub. I do four podcasts a week. I do a show called One Step Deeper with my best friend, Brittany. She's 20 years younger than me, Cynthia. And so I'm a Gen X. She's a millennial. And you would think we'd butt heads. We're the best of friends. And oh, we don't agree but we always love each other at the end of the conversations, even when we don't agree. So we do a show like a mindset show, One Step Deeper on Mondays. Tuesday, Wednesday is my flagship show, Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Thursday, I do a show called Real Talk because I've talked about keto and low carb for 17 years. I need some other kind of outlet so I get... <laughs> to talk about some of the pandemic stuff on there. I do all kinds of things on that show, but that's Thursday called Real Talk. 
all of that again, LLDLC.com. Follow me on all the socials. Live in Low Carb Man is my username there. I just created a TikTok. All these people doing these TikTok videos. And I, I was like, what is my niche on TikTok? Because nobody wants to see Jimmy Moore dancing. And so I find these videos of people that are against keto. And then like, I'm just like giving them funny faces. I, I posted one today as of the recording of yeah. this and people have loved it. And so yeah. Jimmy Moore Keto is the username there if you want to follow me on TikTok. Well, I'll have to go follow you on TikTok. I, my team finally convinced me to do it. And what I've been doing lately are just little like short well, little things on three things about blah, 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 blah. The point ones, that's so stupid to me. Mm-hmm. I don't dance. I don't really do recipes. So I was like, what's my niche? And actually what inspired it was Ryan Lowry doing his. He's always responding to these kind of weird ones. Mm-hmm. And then Sean Baker showing all these vegans making these like meat oh, products. And so yeah. I'm like, Jimmy could do his own version of that. And so that's yeah. what I'm trying. And yeah, we'll see how it goes. No, I love it. I'll have to go follow you on there. It's funny. My team's like, you have two followers. I'm like, yeah, it's going to be slim. That is not where I'm spending my time. You guys can run it. (laughs) Anyway, Jimmy, it's been a pleasure. Obviously I could talk to you for hours. We'll have to definitely have you back later in the year. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for your time. And I'm excited to interview you on my show when your book comes out. Yes, for sure. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.